Thank you for tuning in and welcome to This Just In. I'm your host, Justin Barnes. In these half-hour segments, I'll bring you the latest advancements in healthcare, strategy, innovation, and public policy. As always, we're broadcasting from the This Just In studios on the Business Radio X network, as well as the Healthcare Now radio network. And before we dive in with my special guest today, I want to take a moment and remind everyone that we'll be broadcasting live again the This Justin Radio Show from the HIMSS Annual Conference. HIMSS, the conference this year, will be in Orlando, Florida, starting next month, February 20th. We already have a great slate of CEO, CIO, leading care providers, industry thought leaders, and certainly policymakers joining the show again. Um, some familiar faces, but also many new, so you certainly want to catch us. Uh, much more to come from the HIMSS media team in the coming weeks, but we'll have our same two-day format, and again, we'll be broadcasting live from the HIMSS annual conference show floor, February 20th and 21st. Um, we're even building the same uh, ESPN College Game Day look and feel, uh, but double the size. Uh, we're going to double the uh, size of the booth, double the size of the uh, stage, so that's uh, guaranteed to be another great time. I'm looking very, very forward to it. Ryan, my producer, is going to come down with me uh, as well, so we're going to have a great time. Um, see a lot of friends. I think it's about 36,000 of our closest friends, and this year, I think they're projecting over 40,000, so it's going to be a lot of fun. However, for this episode, my 81st episode, we have a very special guest, CMS Deputy Chief of Staff and Director of Delivery System Reform, Tim Groniger. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Justin. Good afternoon. Afternoon. Great to have you here. So before we dive in too deep, because uh, I'm very excited, uh, you were here in Atlanta um, last month and just did a fantastic job on the panel talking about uh, MACRA and MIPS and the quality payment program and then just about delivery system reform in general. Um, and we're going to dive into all the, the beautiful components of that. Um, but before we dive in, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up and college and all that good stuff. Sure. So I uh, grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City in a small town called Olathe, Kansas. And I grew, I stayed there through high school and uh, grew up at, and have been a lifetime Kansas Jayhawk fan. <laughs> I went to school in uh, in Boston. I went to Harvard and studied biochemistry. And over several years, I uh, acquired a love for and was quickly burned out on uh, biochemistry, working in labs for very long hours. Uh, but the, the good piece of it was that I realized that my uh, real love and desire was in uh, pursuing interests in health policy and health care. And uh, I, after that, I went to graduate school after a little bit of time uh, in working as a healthcare consultant with, uh, with pharmaceutical companies, actually. I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan, where I did degrees in public health and public policy, health services administration. And after that, I moved to Washington, D.C., where I've been for 12 years now. I have worked in a lot of different jobs in D.C., including uh, jobs for the legislative branch, both in uh, nonpartisan, as we say, capacities at uh, the Congressional Budget Office, yep. uh, where I worked as, a, as an analyst uh, estimating the costs of legislation affecting Medicare, for example. And then in 2008, I decided to uh, join ranks with the, uh, the committee staff at the House Energy and Commerce Committee, 
working for uh, first Chairman John Dingell and then Chairman Henry Waxman, and had the good fortune to be able to jump right into the legislation that was the Recovery Act and then the High Tech Act, uh, where we, working with a whole host of others, were able to uh, to create and fund uh, the High Tech Act programs, including uh, for better and for worse, meaningful use. Uh, much of it, uh, from my perspective, for better. Uh, of course, with many well-known draw, uh, drawbacks that we have been trying to improve and correct over the last few years. Uh, after that, I went to the White House for a few years to work on coordinating the efforts of the administration to uh, execute the delivery system reform provisions of the Affordable Care Act. And I joined up with CMS um, not uh, two years ago now, almost two years ago, to uh, work on much the same topics and have been uh, trying to help make sure that we are holding ourselves accountable for uh, both improve, uh, doing what we can to support improvement in the delivery system, uh, making sure that we are improving affordability for patients and that we are keeping an eye on, on costs. Uh, and also as an important part of all of that work, making sure that the, that the delivery system reform initiatives uh, work and make sense for clinicians and healthcare systems in the country, that they, that they take away burdens and that they make available more time for patient care uh, and don't just layer on reporting requirement after uh, reporting requirement. Yeah. So that, that is a little bit of a mix of my background and my work. But, you know, I, um, I have been here for 12 years. I work with uh, some of the most amazing people in the world, and uh, I consider myself a very lucky person through and through. Did you ever work with Peter Orzag, the OMB? Uh, Peter and I overlapped when I was at the Congressional Budget Office, okay. and I worked with him. Uh, he was one of the, the lead negotiators from the administration side on uh, the Affordable Care Act while I was on the Hill, so I worked with him in that capacity as well. He's a, uh, obviously <laughs> very uh, smart and uh, well-informed uh, observer of the healthcare system and uh, has yeah. baked a lot of the ideas uh, from him and his research into the act. Yeah, no, I've uh, worked with him a little bit um, around the same time. So it's, uh, I'm surprised I didn't come across, we didn't meet earlier only because I worked on the uh, Obama transition team and worked with them. I was on the, obviously the industry side, but they called us in pretty early on um, when uh, the High Tech Act was in its formation. Not really, the, it's not as much as the ACA as much as the High Tech Act specifically. Um, yeah. But uh, remember Lauren Aronson? Remember, uh, Lauren's uh, a, a very good friend of mine. Okay. Yes. She's the person who. And I worked with her in multiple capacities, both when she was on the Hill and when she was at CMS and at the yep. White House. Yeah. And I saw her recently. She's uh, she's uh, doing great. And yeah, you remember that that was a really extraordinary time yeah. in policy generally, and for the for the country, uh, we were uh, over ten percent unemployment. You know, the high tech provisions of the law were nobody's top priority at the time, in the sense that. There was uh, a, the largest recession since the Great Depression. There were financial reforms. There was a lot happening. And uh, the Recovery Act was a major lift uh, very early in the administration. And then we immediately jumped into the uh, the next phase, which was the Affordable Care Act, which took uh, you know more than a year from that point on to go through the hearings, the writing, the markups, the floor work, and then the... Uh, getting to final passage in uh, March of the next year. Yep. 
So let's fast forward um, because you've obviously been instrumental. How long have you been working on Macro? Because I know a lot of my guests and listeners want to listen to that. So in the sense that most of my heavy-duty engagements and work with Macra has been since it was passed, mm-hmm. since I've been in the administration during the, mm-hmm. the work of Macra itself, uh, since, uh, since around and before the time it was passed, we have been looking at how to implement it effectively. Uh, more generally, I worked on more than 10 SGR patch and replacement bills uh, while I was on the Hill, and they were always a nightmare, and they were always a little bit of an embarrassment, uh, honestly, as a health policy professional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had been kicking around many of these sorts of ideas, and uh, I drafted some, uh, along with colleagues, uh, some predecessor legislation that uh, had similar ideas. So this the MACRA has, has been in the air for a long time and has been uh, has been shaped by bipartisan uh, yep. leadership on both sides of the aisle on the Hill for, for a period of years. For sure. So at a high level, because we're going to dive in deeper and deeper as we go, um, how can we use MACRA to provide better care for patients, families, and communities? Kind of get everybody's attention to start off with. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think it's the most important question that we asked as we started implementing the law. Um, you know, it, what was clear to us was that if we were going to uh, simply create meaningful use 2.0 combined with PQRS 3.0 and value modifier 2.0 uh, and have them be the sum total of what the MACRA or the quality payment program, is, as we uh, often refer to it, that, that that wasn't going to work and that that was going, wasn't going to support care improvement in a very efficient way. Um, and so we went out into the field and talked to a lot of clinicians about how to how to implement it and how what what they needed to support improvement in care for the patients they see um, and I think that the important uh, the important dynamic here is that the payment system impacts care delivery uh, in subtle and historically not helpful ways uh, that you know the analogies are always around it, what what sort of results would you get if you pay uh, pay the carpenter by the inch for uh, the size of your house, uh, you'd probably get more house than you need and in some cases would lead to, you know, structural problems. I, we, uh, you know, that has been a known problem in healthcare for a long time and MACRA provides a framework for for addressing it over time. And you probably have seen the New York Times article from yesterday about the Indiana University Hospital uh, by Jonah Kessel. Mm-hmm. Really interesting and powerful piece that goes out and uh, he, he observed for a week the work of, of this hospital. Uh, and this hospital is working on a project that's, that we started last year uh, uh, along with uh, hospitals across the country that, that uh, reforms the way we pay for and support care for uh, hip and knee replacements. Mm-hmm. We call it our, um, our, uh, our joint care replacement model. Um, and the, the, what you really see here, and you see variations of this in a lot of our alternative payment models, is uh, a, a new focus on the outcomes that patients uh, actually care about. Uh, in this case, it's care and results for a patient over an extended period of time, not just in the hospital setting. So the hospital leaders that, that they talked to were really clear that they were focusing on 90 days of care which is the, you know a good measure, a good proxy for a patient's total experience of a uh, joint replacement. 
that they are measuring uh, everywhere, measuring everything and every uh, everything, both clinical quality measures, also cost efficiency measures. Uh, they found numerous examples of clinicians using a more expensive product with not a real clear clinical benefit just because that's what they've always done. Yep. And you see real sense of responsibility for outcomes of a patient that uh, whereas before the responsibility responsibility is diffuse and is sort of attached to I'm responsible for the patient at this specific moment in time when he's uh, in front of me. But after that, I hand, hand him off to the post-acute care provider and expect that that will, will go okay. Now it's, uh, I'm following up with the post-acute care provider and I'm using a more efficient post-acute care provider because I am going to be held responsible for that. And, uh, you know, you can look at this and say that this is, uh, that this is asking too much or that this is not, not a fair request. But what we've heard and what we've seen in, in many of our models that this, is that this type of model supports the type of care that clinicians want to provide, that uh, if we are providing payment based on total outcomes, whether it's for an episode or for a year in the case of ACO models, for example, that allows clinicians to innovate and provide care in, in ways that are, say, not when the patient's directly in front of you. You don't you don't have to bill for every single thing you do in this type of model in order to have financial viability. And, you know, there are a lot of kinks to work out. This I don't mean to say by any stretch of the imagination that everything is, is baked and everything is perfect. This is something that's going to take years and years to transition through and to get right. But I think that stories like this show that uh, we've got a really good start on some promising new models. No, I agree. So, Knowing that we just closed the uh, the sixty day comment period that was open, do you see any changes coming that uh, from that final rule comment period? Yeah, so we are still looking through the comments that we've gotten, and we'll be uh, you know we need to do rulemaking in the next year for the entire program because some of the param- some of the some of the rules of the road haven't been set. We wanted to make sure we were getting a full set of input and feedback on the first year of the program. And so we took the somewhat unusual step of making it a final rule with comment period. I don't have anything to announce on that front now, but we certainly will be trying to follow the same approach we've taken with the uh, proposed rule where we we underwent, uh, as you know, extensive listening sessions. We met with uh, more than 100,000 individuals through the proposed and final rulemaking process. Um, We... We uh, received more than 4,000 formal comment letters, um, and so we are going to continue to rely on extensive feedback, both for the formal process, but also uh, we've been doing a lot more of just informal listening, of picking up the phone and calling clinicians who have, have reached out to us and asking, hey, what do you think about this dynamic? What do you think about this piece of the of the qpp.cms.gov website? Is, this, is there a clearer way we could say this? Are there materials that we need to get out? So that approach of, uh, I think Andy has called it, uh, Andy Slavitt, our acting administrator, has called it uh, user-driven uh, policymaking uh, is something that we will try to continue as much as possible. Yeah, no, and I certainly commend the administration, you and Andy and the the whole team. You guys have done a great job reaching out to us and the community, listening to care providers, um, and just uh, in in trying to create the best policy possible. So I I, I know a lot of people feel that way. Um, So turn the corner a little bit here. 
Um, it's a question that I've gotten from across my audiences and certainly just me in general out, out there uh, speaking on the rule and the policy. Um, how would we or, or can we make this um, like a public-private initiatives versus only Medicare? I mean, I know there is some components to it, but we certainly want to get the the um, the private sector, the commercial payers more involved. So what are, what are some of your thoughts there? Yeah, I think that it's really important that this not be a Medicare-only initiative. And by this, I mean uh, delivery system reform generally or efforts mm-hmm. to improve care. No clinician uh, says, I'm going to provide this standard of care for Medicare patients and the standard of care right. for my Aetna patients and yeah. the standard of care for my state Medicaid patients. Uh, that's not the way that people think, and that's not the way anyone wants to deliver care. At the same time, if they're being paid differently and subject to different measures and different, uh, effectively different revenue outcomes, depending on how they treat patients, you can end up with some real confusion. And we've tried to ha- tackle that head on by working with payers, both commercial and state Medicaid agencies, to set some, some clear direction for payment reform activities. And Secretary Burwell uh, had led the work on announcing payment reform goals uh, to make sure that we are getting to 50% of payments in alternative payment models by 2018, for example. We also had an interim goal for 2016 of 30% that we passed early last year. Uh, and the goal here is that is is not just to hit a number, but that, uh, you know, to avoid the, the worst outcomes, which are the ones where that, that you hear these a lot, actually, where we would have a, a pioneer ACO mm-hmm. participant, for example, that had focused heavily on avoiding preventable readmissions and uh, had fi- found a number of patients where, uh, say, for heart failure, that they could be managed more effectively at home. And so the hospital, under traditional fee-for-service payment mechanisms, including old Medicare payment mechanisms, it would, would have been foregoing revenue. Uh, but because they were in a pioneer ACO, they were able to uh, demonstrate that the patient was getting better care, the patients were having better outcomes, and the system was saving money, and so they would receive a share of that savings. Uh, in some of our ACOs, that those care benefits spilled over to other payers, uh, which is good. The, the bad part is right. that in some cases, those payers were still in a, under a fee-for-service system. Mm-hmm. So the hospital, even if it was doing the right thing for patients, would be losing revenue. And so we've tried to address that by uh, working with other payers through the Healthcare Learning and Action, Healthcare Payment Reform Learning and Action Network, for example, where we have eight of the 10 largest commercial payers, many state Medicaid programs engaged. We've also tried to consolidate quality measures where possible. We've uh, worked with the payers to uh, agree around seven medical specialties, uh, the core measure, the core quality measure sets that we would uh, that we would use and that they would use so that for an ACO, for instance, you wouldn't have uh, three different ACO quality measure sets or for uh, for maternity care, for OBGYN work, you wouldn't have five different measure sets. And uh, we've also been engaged with the, the med- relevant medical specialty societies in that work. And so we want to see more and more of that and uh, continued uh, streamlining of the measure reporting process so that the measures that are gathered are ones that patients actually care about and benefit from and are uh, appropriate that, that payers would be uh, asking for accountability on them. Oh, that's excellent. And for those that have made you, may have joined us a little late, my guest today is Tim Groninger, 
CMS Deputy Chief of Staff and Director of Delivery System Reform. So moving right along here, Tim, what are, um, uh, you know, CMS, you know, I, I applauded you on the panel that, you, you know, CMS has been fantastically flexible with clinicians, certainly for the first year, lowered the bar, lots of options when you get into quality measures, you know, you get options, you have 55 to choose from if you're a family practitioner, 37 internal medicine, 20 for cardiology, 21 for ortho, 18 for ENT. I mean, just tons of flexibility. And also when you want to participate in the program and start the program, tons of flexibility um, for the first performance year. But what about the second? I mean, can, any thoughts there on where this direction might go? Um, I know that you can't project too far, but what are some of your thoughts or at least your intent? Yeah. So like we discussed a little bit earlier, uh, we want to continue to get input and get feedback on the best way to transition and, and uh, follow the on-ramp for this program that is uh, most practical and most effective for patients and for clinicians. And so we're, we're using the final rule with comment period mm-hmm. to do that. We anticipate by the, that by the third year, we will have the uh, a full year of reporting required for um, for the program, and that the the scoring standards will be based on the average or median performance as is required by the law in that year. Yeah. And so we want to be able to to see the second year as uh, a transition between the uh, the first year and that third year. We are still working through what we are going to be needing to do for the scoring standards and to make the the reporting timing work. So I think that that's something that we are very much uh, using the comments to get information on. We're going to be very interested in making sure that small practices are receiving appropriate accommodations. We are looking uh, to make sure that we are opening as many advanced alternative payment models as possible, which is something that is really ramping up in the second year of the program in 2018. And so we um, we want to make sure that we are continuing uh, with flexibility uh, on into the second year, recognizing that the, um, the, the test uh, option for the first year was, uh, was a sort of special case where we had a, uh, a timing uh, where the final rule needed to be out two months before the year started, uh, mm-hmm. which, uh, by the way, as, uh, as you noted in Atlanta last month, we are now uh, in the reporting period for the first year of the MIPS program yes. for clinicians who elect to report for a full year. So uh, that's another way to mark the new year. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, to conclude on your question, we, uh, we think that we're going to have continue to have a lot of options for participating in the program that are going to be suitable for clinicians in different types of practices. Excellent. So two quick questions left, but um, closing one on MACRA and MIPS, um, what advice would you offer clinicians or best practices on uh, on how they can be successful with the program from a high level? Sure. Um, I would say at a high level, you're probably more prepared than you think you are. Yep. The quality payment program is starting slow, so it's it's easy to make a small bonus. It's easy to get started with the flexible reporting options we've offered with test or partial options, or even uh, it's not uh, for many clinicians going to be too challenging to report for the full year. So you should go to qpp.cms.gov to check out the basics. Um, you should make a plan with your practice to think about how you're going to submit the measures, imp- measures information through a registry, electronic health record, or claims, uh, and to choose the measures that you want to focus on. We uh, have a, uh, an explore measures feature on qpp.cms.gov that can be very helpful, uh, and, uh, and you identified that for most 
clinicians, there are many more measures available to report on than you yes. need to report on. Uh, and you should consider taking advanced steps. You can pick your speed and pace based on your readiness. If you're ready for more advanced steps, you can consider reporting for the full year and, up, and maximizing your chance for uh, demonstrating really high high quality performance and receiving a positive incentive, uh, and you should look at enjoying, joining alternative payment models in, mm-hmm. uh, in the future. Joining ACO programs for the 2018 year, for instance, is something that uh, might make sense for a lot of practices. Oh, great advice! Great advice. Um, so, I always ask this of my guests uh, in closing, um, and we always run out of time faster than we always want to. So, I apologize for running out of time. But, um, but uh, what's your favorite place to get or be inspired, Tim? Um, you know, I am going to give probably a more prosaic answer than um, uh, of some of your other guests. But I am, and I'm really inspired by people in my daily life, by mm-hmm. my coworkers, by my family. Uh, when whenever I'm feeling like I am not able to deliver the results that we are looking for, I uh, because there are just too many demands on on our time. I look around at what uh, people I'm working with are accomplishing and that what they are expecting of me and um, I am, uh, uh, I'm amazed by it. And, uh, I would say that's through, that's true throughout CMS. I've never encountered uh, a more dedicated and motivated, uh, group of professionals in my career. And, um, every day at work, I, I work with people who are, uh, from the, the leadership, uh, people in, uh, in our office here through, uh, through staff all across the agency in Baltimore and Washington, uh, people are just really dedicated to uh, making life better for patients, getting them coverage, uh, making the delivery system work just a little bit better, a little bit at a time. So uh, I am very inspired by the people I work with. That's a great answer. And believe it or not, it's actually more common than you would think. So uh, All right. Yeah, that's excellent. Good to hear. Tim, great to have you on the show and as my guest today. And thank you for taking the time out of your really busy schedule um, to join us. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. And for everyone listening, thank you very much also for joining us today. And please tune in weekdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Pacific. As always, you can track me on Twitter at HIT Advisor and use the hashtag ThisJustIn so we can respond to your comments from the show. In addition, all my content will be posted on my website, justinbarnes.com. Thanks, everyone. Have a terrific week. 